Just a quick note before we begin, this episode features adult language and descriptions of violence that you'd expect to hear in a podcast about the mafia. So if you have kids in the room, you may want to listen with headphones. You've probably heard the phrase, there's no such thing as a stupid question. Well, in the mafia, that's not true, as Anthony Arellata will tell you. You know what you're signed up for when you're part of that life. You can't ask questions, especially like, you know, with these old timers. And Artie Nigro, the boss of the Genovese crime family, he was an old timer. And Artie was an old school type brought up by the old ways. If you ask questions, they'd probably end up shooting you. So one morning, when the Genovese boss asked Aralada to drive down to New York, Aralada didn't ask why, but he soon found out. Nigro's right-hand man, John Bologna, had a message for him. John Bologna told me that Artie wants you to do a piece of work. A piece of work, meaning to do something violent. And he gave me a piece of paper with the guy's name on it. Just the name? Yeah. No address or anything? And, and if you looked at the name, it sounded like Dabadoo. Aralada didn't know it at the time, but the guy's name was Frank Dadabo. He was a shop steward in the Cement Masons Union in New York City, a union that was under the thumb of Artie Nigro and the Genovese family. Nigro and Dadabo used to be friends. They'd hang out, they'd have dinner together, and in turn, Nigro would hook Dadabo up with union jobs. But in 2003, they had a falling out over concert tickets, of all things. Nigro and Dadabo had tickets to go see Tony Bennett at Radio City Music Hall with the wives. But some wires got crossed, plans got changed, and feelings got hurt. In the end, Nigro went to the concert without Dadabo and then lied to him about it. When Dadabo eventually found out, he was furious. But smart people don't confront mob bosses. So instead, Dadabo played it passive-aggressive and ghosted Nigro. When Nigro would ask to see him, Dadabo wouldn't respond. He even stopped going to Nigro for union work. Instead, he went to a rival organized crime family. For Artie Nigro, that was an insult too great to ignore. So he asked Anthony Arellata to do a piece of work. I asked him, what do you want to do with this guy? You know, and that's when he said, kill him. Did you ask any questions? You just would never do that. You would never ask. You don't ask questions because only rats ask questions. And Aralata was loyal. But his loyalty was starting to be tested. He was caught between two bosses, Artie Nigro, head of the New York Genovese family, and Al Bruno, boss of the Springfield Mafia. And that tension created a whole lot of chaos. Chaos that would eventually allow my colleagues and me to go up against the mob. From CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network, this is Season 2, The Springfield Crew. I'm Ellie Honig, a former organized crime prosecutor for the Southern District of New York. Episode 2, A Piece of Work. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place 
there are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. What does it take to be an entrepreneur and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the Future of Entrepreneurship, a Prop G Pod special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. In the mafia, murdering someone for your boss is seen as the ultimate act of loyalty. It shows that you're willing to kill because your leader gave you an order. And once it's done, the murder becomes an unspoken bond between those who are involved. An illicit bell you can't unring. So when Artie Nigro asked Anthony Arellata to do a piece of work, he was testing Arellata's loyalty. And more importantly, if Arellata was loyal to the New York boss, it meant his allegiance to Al Bruno in Springfield was waning. Arellata had never done a piece of work like this before. He'd never killed anyone, but he didn't seem to mind. In my life growing up, something like that was common. You know, if somebody said do something violent, it wasn't abnormal. We did violent stuff our whole life. This wasn't a one-person job that Arellata could do by himself. To do it right, the hit required two shooters and a driver, so he needed two more people. Right away, he knew just who to ask. What's up, brother? What's going on, bro? How you doing, right. bro? The Gius oh, brothers. You know Freddy and Ty Gius. Wow, there's so much shit going on over here, and what's going on over there now? They may not sound like it from this prison phone call, but Freddy and Ty were scary guys. Stephanie Barry is a newspaper reporter who has covered the Springfield Mafia for over 20 years. She got to know all the big players firsthand. Freddie and Ty Gius were incorrigible criminals since they were young. They were very large, well-built, kind of sinister-looking guys. Barry says the Gius brothers were inseparable. Except when they were in prison, which was a lot, they were a package deal. You would rarely see Freddie without Ty. Freddie, I would say, was a little more charming, a little more, you know, crack a big smile. Ty was a little bit more introverted. He had this, like, vacant, frightening look in his eyes. Arellata met Ty Gius while he was in prison for the gun possession charge. He became friends with Ty's older brother, Freddie, when he got out. They were crazy guys, ballsy guys. And they appeared to have a taste for fighting. Freddie, one time, we, were, we fought these kids and hit him with the guy in the head with a bar stool, and it looks like spaghetti coming out of his head. To be clear, the Gius brothers were never officially in the Springfield mob. They were Greek, and this was the Italian mafia. But Arellata trusted them, and he thought they might be willing to kill someone. He was right. Right. 
as soon as I asked them, there was no hesitation. They were like, sure, no problem. And we started making plans about how to do it. Their first order of business was to conduct a dry run. They wanted to see what Frank Dadabo looked like, what time he left his apartment, and what car he walked to. So one morning, they drove down to Dadabo's apartment building. It was a, a busy New York street in the Bronx, and it was apartment buildings on one side, and then there was like, there was a space where there was an underpass, so there was like no buildings. It was just like brush and trees. Arolotta was told that the union guy left his apartment every morning at 6 a.m. We end up uh, just happen to get onto the street that he lives on, and as we're driving down the street, we see this guy that's, uh, you know, Italian-looking guy that fits the description of who we're supposed to kill. And I said, that's him right there. If we had guns on us right there, I mean, you couldn't ask for a perfect timing. Now they'd seen Dadabo's face, confirmed his car, observed his morning routine. So now we're ready. We, we know what we need to do. Next, Arolada and the Gius brothers returned to Springfield to plan the rest of the hit. They decided to use two handguns with silencers so the neighbors wouldn't hear. And they'd wear thick rubber gloves to avoid leaving fingerprints. On the morning of May 19th, 2003, the three of them headed to Dadabo's apartment building. We were going to have Freddie just be the driver. Me and Ty were going to be the shooters. So Freddie drops us off. Freddie goes and parks down the street. Then Aralata and Ty Gius sat on a bench and waited. So now me and Ty are sitting there, and uh, I don't know, we're waiting. I don't know how long it was. Could have been a half hour. Ty had to go use the bathroom. So Ty walked over to the brush across the street. When he came back, Aralata decided to have a little fun. And I said, what did you just do? And he says, what? I said, you just put your DNA all over a crime scene. We're about to murder somebody, and you just put, and he's looking at me like all serious. He goes, what do you mean? We're talking, and I'm busting his balls, and we're laughing, and we don't notice that the guy is already halfway across the street. He already came out of his apartment, and he's walking, you know, across the street now to get into his car. And I said, oh, fuck, there he is. So we jumped up quickly, and we grabbed the guns. Aralata and Ty followed Dadabo to his car. And we arrive just as he closes the door of his car. Then we both just put the guns to the uh, window, and we just started firing into the uh, window. And we're shooting directly at him. You know, at the first shot, the window shattered, and, you know, we're just shooting, 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 shooting. Finally, they ran out of bullets. You could see blood on him. He wasn't moving. You know, when Freddie came up and pulled up, we looked at him, and, you know, the guy was head, his head was back. I want to say his mouth was open. And uh, even Freddie said, he goes, oh, yeah, he's definitely dead. He's definitely dead. Now all they had to do was get rid of the evidence. They threw the guns into a marsh a few blocks away, and they cut the gloves into pieces, tossing the pieces out the window as they drove back up the highway. Pretty soon, they were home. When they arrived back in Springfield, the two shooters had one more piece of evidence to clean up. 
So we thought we had gun register and we heard that, you know, vinegar is good. And we also heard that your own piss is a good way to get rid of gun residue. You know, when we got back home, that's what we did. We Which pissed. one? We pissed. <laughs> we <laughs> On, got rid of our clothes. Uh-huh. You know, we got into new clothes. But before that, we... Uh, we pissed and used piss to uh, like rub on up. your own hands yeah, and arms. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Didn't have any vinegar. I don't know. I just heard the piss was better. Yeah. All right. Well, it's free. It's natural. Yeah. Did you have any moment of remorse? Did you have any moment of sorrow? Any moment of wow? I just ended that guy's life. No. Why not? Um, I just didn't. I don't know. It was no moment of sorrow or no moment of remorse. No. Like I said, it was another day, only this time it was a little bit more serious, but the bad part was it was in New York and the drive. So for Aralata, the two-hour commute was the worst part of a day where he filled a guy with bullets and left him for dead. Even for mobsters, and I've talked to many, this is cold-blooded. The next morning... Aralata scoured the New York newspapers to see if they'd written about the shooting. That's a big hit, you know, on the street. You murder a guy, shoot him right on the street, and you figure it's going to be in in the papers, especially it's going to be probably known as a mob hit, right? But we didn't see nothing like that. There was a reason the murder didn't make the papers. When I was getting shot at the car, I knew that I was not going to die. I said, he's shooting me. Sooner or later, they're going to stop. And I just felt that I could take it. Yup. That's the guy they shot. Frank Didabo. What does it take to be an entrepreneur, and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast, and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the Future of Entrepreneurship, a Prop G Pod special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G Podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a Pod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the Pod wherever you get your podcasts. Frank Dadabo was shot nine times in the torso. And miraculously, he survived. We were able to track him down. When I got into the car, I pulled my jacket over my head and I sat up a little bit because I didn't want him to shoot me in the head. And they just kept shooting me and all the shots were on the side of me. When the shooters drove off, Dadabo tried to call for help. I tried to take my cell phone out to call my wife and it slipped out of my hand. It fell on the floor, and I couldn't get it. So Dadabo summoned what strength he had left and opened his car door. I walked across the street, and I called my wife by the window. She opened the window, and 
She said, what's the matter? I said, call 911. I've been shot. Dadabo's wife ran to the phone and called for an ambulance. When it arrived, her husband was unconscious. I woke up in the hospital like the next day or whatever. And by his bedside, a New York police officer was waiting to take a statement. But Dadabo refused. He didn't want to talk about the shooting. With no witnesses, the cops had little to go on. And the NYPD marked the incident as unsolved. When I spoke to Dadabo on the phone, 19 years after the shooting, he was still hesitant to discuss it. Fear of mob retribution doesn't go away. Here's what I want to sort of flow to you. I don't want you to have to tell us any of the backstory or any names or any of the already Nigro crap. Just if you're willing to just tell us what it was like, what, what you remember about that day. If you're willing to just do that, even right now, if you want, that'll be it. You'll never hear from us again. All right, let's go. Dadabo told me about his injuries. I was shot nine times. I still have a bullet in my lung and one in my chest. I was in a wheelchair for a couple of months. I couldn't even walk. With injuries like that, Dadabo had to leave his union job. I had to retire. I lost my job. I couldn't work no more. I went through a rough, rough time. Dadabo moved out of town, away from Artie Nigro. As far as the boss was concerned, his former friend was as good as dead. Nigro was happy, but he wanted to give Aralata some advice. We ended up going to uh, New York, and I was walking with him. He said, uh, the guy's still alive, and at some point he said, you got to get better at headshots. Was yeah. he joking or was he serious? Yeah, he wasn't serious. I mean, he was like, it was kind of like a sarcastic, you know, little, you know. Was Artie angry that, that the guy no. had lived or was Artie no, pleased no. that you had done it? Yeah, please, definitely pleased. He okay. was like uh, so impressed. Dadabo was out of the picture. But that wasn't the only reason Artie Nigro was pleased. Nigro wanted to control the Springfield rackets. He wanted to extort the city's businesses as he saw fit. But he couldn't do that with Al Bruno standing in his way. And now Aralata had proven his loyalty to Artie Nigro, while Al Bruno was completely in the dark. The next step was getting Aralata his mob button, turning him into an official made guy. If murdering someone for your boss is the ultimate act of mob loyalty, then getting made is the ultimate reward. It means everything in the mafia. You become an official member of the secret society, La Cosa Nostra. No one is allowed to lay a finger on you, not without permission from the boss. I could be on a, uh, an even playing field. I could sit down with bosses and captains. And for Nigro, getting Aralata made would give him an inside guy in Springfield. Someone to help take over the city's lucrative criminal rackets. So one August morning in 2003, just three months before Bruno was murdered, Aralata received instructions from John Bologna to meet at a steakhouse in the Bronx. A mobster he didn't recognize was there waiting when he arrived. I never uh, met him before. We hugged, kissed, or shook hands and kiss on the cheek, you know. He said, uh, Anthony, you know, put your uh, jewelry, 
your phone, your beep, or anything like that. Just put it in this ashtray over here. Then the man offered some advice. He says, uh, whatever you do when you get in there, you make sure you tell them you don't know why you're there. Eventually, the man escorted Aralata to a car waiting outside the steakhouse. They drove to an apartment where a different man met Aralata at the door. He handed Aralata a bathrobe and told him to go into the bathroom, strip down to his underwear, and put on the robe. Did you feel weird about that? A little bit. I get, I get it. I guess they were being overly cautious about who they were bringing in to the family, making sure that guys weren't you know, wearing a wire or anything like that. Eventually, the man ushered Aralata into a big, empty room. The only furniture inside was a table and a few chairs. Artie Nigro and a captain named Pat DeLuca were sitting at the table. I walked over to the table, and then I sat down with uh, Artie and Pat. There was a gun and a knife on the table. Then, Nigro began the induction ceremony with a question. Do you know why you're here? Uh, we're part of uh, a secret society, part of a family. Would you be uh, interested in uh, joining our family? I said, yeah. If we ask you to uh, kill for us, would you kill? Would you use the gun and the knife that are on this table? Yes. What trigger finger would you use? This one. You showed him your... Right. And then he grabbed my hand and he, uh, he poked it with a pen, you know, drew some blood out of it. Next, Nigro took a tissue and absorbed the blood from Aralata's pricked finger. He lit it on fire and placed the burning tissue inside Aralata's cupped hands. Finally, he began reciting the Oath of Omerta. He told me to repeat after him that I'm um, becoming a brother, part of the family. If I ever betray this, I'll be killed. If I ever speak about this moment again, my soul will burn like this tissue. The oath was complete. And then I clapped my hands together and just rubbed uh, the fire into my hands to put it out. Obviously, Aralata didn't keep that promise, which is why we're here. And he's still alive, which, trust me, we'll get to. But after Aralata put out that burning tissue, he was officially a made man. He'd come a long way from carrying Al Bruno's groceries at his father's produce store. That's when uh, Pat got off the table and he said, hello, friend, and he came over, he kissed me, and Artie came over, you know, he hugged me, kissed me. He goes, you know, you're one of us now. Then, Nigro said something that isn't typically part of the ceremony. He made it a point to tell me, he goes, you're direct with me. Meaning, Aralata no longer reported to Al Bruno in Springfield. That was very, very big. That never happens. Uh, you know, a boss never has somebody report directly to him. It's always, you know, an underboss. He's always insulated. But because I was from Massachusetts and I was his guy, I was going to report directly to him. Now, with Aralata being made, Nigro's plan to take over Springfield was almost complete. But Al Bruno was still in the way. So they have to demote Bruno. They want to break him from a captain to a soldier. But surprisingly, even though Nigro was the boss, he didn't have the power to demote Bruno on his own. You see, a governing council runs the Genovese crime family, a committee of three high-ranking members who represent different factions of the family. Who's on the governing council and where they meet is a secret. 
Most family members don't even know who's on it. But big decisions, like demoting a captain, need to be put to a vote. And that takes time. So to avoid raising Bruno's suspicion, Nigro told Aralata not to tell anyone he'd been made. Did you tell Al Bruno? No. Why not? They didn't trust Bruno. I was told not to tell him specifically. But Bruno sensed something was wrong. Well, he was scared. He knew he was losing power. And it was happening now. When Bruno became Springfield's boss, he frequently spoke to Artie Nigro and Pat DeLuca, the captain who was at Aralata's initiation ceremony. But now, both mobsters were giving Bruno the cold shoulder. Pat and Artie told me, they said, listen, Bruno's been trying to reach out to us. Then they gave Aralata a message. They said, uh, tell Bruno, stop reaching out to anybody in New York, that when we're ready, we'll call for him. A few days later, Aralata picked a strange time to deliver that message. One night, he was at a bachelor party. And Bruno comes in, and Bruno was yelling at me. Bruno was angry because Aralata was hanging out with another mobster he hated named Emilio Fusco. Bruno wanted it to stop. He goes, didn't I tell you to stop hanging around with Emilio? And I go, Bruno, what's the big deal? I go, the the kid's a a made guy. He goes, I told you, it doesn't matter. He goes, I don't want you hanging around with him. You keep defying me. Then Aralata pulled a power move. So then I hit him with, hey, I got a message for you. And he goes, from who? I go, from Pat and Artie. And he said, "Uh, Pat and Artie. And, And I've never seen him rattled. When I told him I had a message for him, he was rattled. He was like stuttering. The wheels were turning. He was trying to figure things out. Why did you go down there? Why'd they call you? Then Aralata gave Bruno the message. They said that you've been reaching out to people. Stop reaching out to them that they'll call you when they're ready to How see did you. How take that at message? It just kept you know, going over. Why did they call you? Where, you know, what did they say? How exactly did they say it? And finally, the light bulb moment. And then that's when he kind of like looked at me and he kind of like pointed to his chest and he said, you got your button. And I said, Bruno, I didn't get anything. And he pointed and like rubbed his fingers together at his chest. He says, he goes, you got it. If I were Al Bruno, This would be the moment I'd be worried about my job security. He must have known they were trying to demote him. But turns out, job security was the least of his problems. A few months later, on November 23, 2003, Bruno left his Sunday night card game and was walking to his Suburban when a hooded figure approached and pulled out a 45 Magnum. How do you find out that Al Bruno has been murdered. My aunt heard it on the uh, police scanner and called my house. My mother answered and she told her, she just heard on the radio that Bruno was just murdered. How did you react? How did you feel when you heard that? I don't remember how I reacted. I just remember I actually was a little saddened. I have to say that, yeah. My mother grew up with him. My father was friends with him. And, you know, us growing up Italian and you want to be a criminal, he was like, you know, guy that we looked up to. And there was a lot of crazy shit going on back then. With Bruno gone, Springfield was Aralata's for the taking. But Bruno's death wouldn't go unnoticed. 
and that vow of silence that the mob keeps talking about, it would soon start to crack. Next time on Up Against the Mob. There's a witness to a murder. He said he had no idea who the guy was, which we think is a lie. If we can really crack this, we will get cooperation and really open the doors into the Springfield mob. Just destroyed the whole bar, like smashed every glass he could get his hands on. I mean, were you scared he would die? I was certainly hoping he wouldn't because, you know, the whole case is kind of over. If that, I mean, dead men tell no tales. For more wild stories about the Springfield Mafia and the inside scoop on how prosecutors go up against the mob, become a member of Cafe Insider. For a limited time, you can get 40% off on your first year of annual membership. Head to cafe.com slash mob and get access to all exclusive cafe content. That's cafe.com slash mob. Special thanks to Megan Kunane for her help putting this episode together. Up Against the Mob is a production of CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network. Matthew Billy is the senior producer and writer. Adam Waller and Noah Azalai are the producers. Isaac Kestenbaum is our editor. Lissa Soep is our story consultant. This episode was mixed and sound designed by David Tadashur. Original score composed by Nat Wiener. Tamara Sepper and Art Chung are the executive producers. I'm Ellie Honig. Thanks for listening. See you next time. What does it take to be an entrepreneur and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the Future of Entrepreneurship, a Prop G Pod special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts.